0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Please be seated. If you're here for the uh, our catechesis, you will have uh, been part of a very rich and lively uh, dialogue uh, on the meaning of all souls, on the meaning of the kingdom season, on meaning of all saints, on what on earth what we are doing now is all about. Um, and these are good questions to ask, and I can't answer them all now. Uh, but we're doing them. One of our friends for many years since we started, uh, Dr. J.I. Packer, would preach here whenever he was in town. He considered it his home, I believe, or so he told me. In One of my periods of saying, I really don't know what we're trying to do here, Dr. Packer, he said, well, Martin, I would have assumed that you are trying to be a classical Anglican church. And I would have said, I guess that's it. I guess that's what we're trying to do. It sounds good to me. Uh, We find that when we try less to be original and more to be typical, things go better for us. Having said that, The whole kingdom season is very atypical for the um, Anglican world. And it reflects that other part of us, which I think wants to be innovative and do something new. And in this, we're guided by a 20th century pope who, in the 1920s, created the idea of a Christ the King Sunday. He said that Advent should end definitively with a blaze of glory. And with the English Franciscans who were the the ground, laid the groundwork for the liturgy we use, the Church of of England's common worship, who extended back between Christ the King Sunday, last Sunday before Advent, and all saints, all souls Tide, that whole period that begins technically on the 1st of November, and made a season and it was called the kingdom season it celebrates the the rule of Christ the reign of Christ even now and the future reign of Christ when he comes back to this planet brings everyone back reembodies us recreates this whole earth in glory in uh, a way in which there's no no sickness no death and we can celebrate his love, and that of one another uh, forever, or at least as far as we can see. So that's uh, the justification. It starts, however, on All Souls Day, and All Souls Day is a- technically the day of the dead. It is celebrated liturgically by a requiem mass, and we are wearing this very formal black and gold attire because the blaze of glory, which is the future hope that we have, is only effective, as any artist will tell you, when it's set against darkness. And our hope is set within the context of the darkness of sin and the ways of sin is death. And death is real, at least experientially for us, as we go to glory. And this All Souls Day very directly engages that pastoral reality, that only through the grave do we go to glory, a long wind-up. So, this is a funeral liturgy for no one in particular, but for everyone. Instead, for all of us who are called, and those who will be called, those who are in the process of being called to be part of Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of God, The time ahead that is set before us when this earth shall be his throne for all to see and know. This is the important thing. When what we know now in faith will be known by all, by sight. In fact, irrefutable, unarguable, and inconceivable way that could escape the notice of no one. When that which we who are born again of water and spirit will show, if you like, to the whole world that everything we have put our stock in, based our life on, is true. And everything around us will echo and reinforce the message that the Spirit says to our hearts and souls now, that Jesus Christ is Lord right now. And this world in which love and power are so often at odds will give way to a new creation, a new world in which all things will be reconciled in him, and in which the power of love will bring all earthly powers, the princes of earth's principalities, to their knees. We emphasis we put the emphasis on love to remind ourselves that the future glory that we await. This life with Christ is a shared one. We're not going to be housed in this heavenly hotel. In solitude, or heaven forbid, on some cloud at 50,000 feet where nothing can live, singing to ourselves and God, we will be brought into fellowship one another, full fellowship, and we will be able to love, as Saint Augustine said, finally, as we tried to love here on earth. So we look at our time now in anticipation of the certainty of that glory that awaits us as a time we should be learning to love. It's the one thing the church should be doing, the only thing we are called to do, to teach one another to love. To prepare ourselves for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, as he says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Faith, hope, and love, and as he says, the most important of these three is love. It alone will endure when faith and hope are no longer necessary. So our task is to learn to love and to live in love, which is the play and interplay of love given and love received. A rhythm which in this life is so often interrupted, so often frustrated and denied, yet we pray always reestablishing itself, always leading us forward to that great love, which is the love of the Lord of love, sovereign over that kingdom where love alone will rule. Here in this life, we know how many are the other things that power our drive forward. One thing alone draws us, but many things get us through the day. Not the love of power that will cause us to spur on our existence with its false promise of security and peace, but the power of love will remain. And if the power of love comes from the hope of response, love returned for love given, which constitutes love's triumphs and love's joy. The tragedy is not love lost. The many times in this life when our love is not responded to, the love of lovers, the love of parents and children, the love of friends, so often disappointed. Relationships that may go up and down, be torn apart, may not in this side of glory be woven back together again. Love we may have that we can never share for a million reasons. Love that is used against us in a thousand ways when we are betrayed. All of these things happen to love here. The tragedy, however, is not that. The tragedy is not love lost ultimately by death, if you like. The tragedy is never to have loved at all. Better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And even though we know, lurking behind our hopes, the knowledge that all our loves, as all our lives, will one day meet that final interruption, death, God's final masterstroke, even though God claims no victory for it in him, also we know that death gets its grip on us only for a while. But it can do that with depressing regularity. And it can shift our focus from the power of love to the love of power. How? We come to love power because power is what you need to survive. And in this world, we are fighting a daily struggle to survive. To join the world in the delusion that we can somehow conquer death. Create our own immortality of soul by what we do here. So if power is what we need, and we always seem to need it or need more of it because we never seem to have enough of it, because there is always someone else, someone other who has more and is willing to use it and not necessarily use it on our behalf, but use it for purposes other than ours, on loving purposes, even use us when it comes right down to it. It's hard to love. It's hard to stay in a loving relationship with everyone that's in your life. That's what we're called to do. When they are using even our love against us, might is right in this world. We don't say it, but too often it's proven to us again and again to be the way things operate here in this world. Now, all this applies to love as well, except that this, here, if love is true and not just another way of exercising power, achieving control, then in God's kingdom, this world is stood on its head. In God's kingdom, and that kingdom is here, as well as yet to come, the way to get what we need is by giving it away. The way to find the safety, the security, the affirmation that we can only get from others is to let it go and try to make others safe and secure and affirmed. And there will always be those in need of love. You have only yourself to let someone know that you love them and you have instantly empowered them. And they can do what they will with the power you have given them. And if they are in love with power... And not under the power of love, they can make your life miserable. No matter. There is no room for love of power in the kingdom of God, and no need for it. Love of power looks to victory. But the power of love looks only to surrender as its prize. Not just the surrender of the beloved to the lover, the surrender of the lover To the Beloved, the laying down of all power at the feet of the Beloved. For I have come down from heaven, the Lord Jesus says, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The love of father and son shown in this case as a love that goes through the son. To all those the Father loves, that's all of us and so many others, that He has given to His Son as a gift of love. And His will is that none of those should be lost. What's the thing that puts us off from the love of God? Death. Because whether death comes with God's permission or whether death sneaks around Him somehow, It still happens on his watch. And we have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that the loving God who made us and sustains us and loves us into love and life will also see us dead for a moment. But for that moment, death will be seen to be the victor. And to the world, that victory may be ultimate. And demands the ultimate surrender then the way to the victory of life over death that lies beyond death for us is to bring death into life by dying. Let me try to make that clear. The way that we can bring life to those we love is by working helping God to so exercise that death to self-will and self-wants that still drive our being, even when we're loved, that we can find ourselves turning that love always back to the other, really beginning a flow of one-way love that may never stop to look and see if that love is returned. Yes, love needs response. You love and the one thing you're looking for is the response of the one you love. But if you love, you will learn to love without that response for as long as you must. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. What kind of God is this who loves us in such a way? I find myself saying this to so many who are sick and afflicted, those who see their way to health and those who see their way into God's presence. I say, I wish our Lord would show his love in a different way once in a while. But God is God, and God's love is God's love. And God is a kind God. The author of the wisdom of Solomon has envisioned this. But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God and no torment will ever touch them. Let's not bother about whether he's ripping body and soul apart in some platonic way. What he's saying is this. In the end, we're safe with God and nothing will take us, nothing will tear us away. No torment will ever touch them. Every tear has been dried. In the eyes of this foolish world, they seem to be dead and gone. And if they're Christians, they died as losers. And their departure was thought to be a disaster. They died for a God stuck on a cross. And they're going from us to be their destruction, gone for good. But we know they are at peace, enjoying a peace like this world cannot give. The love of God in that peace. When we think of peace, we think of power. How is peace achieved? By having a bigger bigger stock of weaponry than than your opponent, doesn't it? Or by winning the victory. You don't have peace if you're the weak kid on the block. I mean, that's entrained into our very being. We're only safe when our might of arms and power keeps us safe. And yet God says to us that he will no more turn his power against us. If we bear with him to that day, when he shows us love for all the world to see, his power to see us suffer and even die, will be set aside forever. Death itself at last will be no more. We still may wonder about the nature of his care and the nature of his love, of what kind of love this is, after all, and we've seen so often images of a God for whom creation is no big deal. It costs him nothing. He makes it with one hand tight behind his back, Nothing can affect him, nothing can hurt him, nothing can grieve him. He lets us in on some kind of a pass. He's glorious, he's big, he's powerful. Why should he be bothered with us? We might want to look to the cross to see, however, who's there. That's God there, by the way. Not just God's victim, but God himself, victor. In this ultimate display of victimhood, victim made strong in weakness, made powerful in surrender, made glorious in pouring himself out totally for us in love. That's God. And we have no idea what cost it is to him to love this world into existence every day. We have no right to presume it is some light or easy thing for God. We have no right to presume that he does not pour himself out for us in ways that we cannot imagine. God promises this, tough though the power of death, love's power is stronger and kinder. Life ends in victory, Love's victory, and of all the love poured out on us and by us returned at last for once and for all and forever for those who believe when all will be seen as it is now in the age to come, seen as it really is. In the end, we will learn the lesson we cannot learn now, that real love does not think in terms of winning and losing, it cannot for love does not even keep score. And here on earth, in this present age, we know in part what we will fully know, just as we are known. And whether we have loved and won or loved and lost, if we have loved at all, in triumph or in tragedy, we have lived, and we have lived the life that goes on living on and on now and for all eternity. Amen.